It's not that I ever wanted to die. I've never wanted to die. But I essentially just wanted to feel some sense of control over what was going on. Hey there, my name is Sean and this is Suicide Noted. On this podcast, I talk with suicide attempt survivors so that we can hear their stories. Every year around the world, millions of people try to take their own lives and we almost never talk about it. And when we do talk about it, many of us, including me, we are not very good at it. So one of my goals with this podcast is to have more conversations and hopefully better conversations with attempt survivors. Now, we are talking about suicide. This may not be a good fit for everyone, so please take that into account before you listen. I do hope you listen because there is so much to learn. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to share your story, I'd love to talk. Please reach out. Hello at suicidenoted.com. You can message us on Facebook or Twitter at Suicide Noted. I want to thank everybody who has come on this podcast to talk about their stories, to share their struggle and recovery. And everybody who's listened, who's listened over the many months we've been doing this in countries around the world, I could not be more pleased with the support. If you'd like to continue helping us, keep listening. Let people know about this podcast. And if you listen on Apple, rating and reviewing this podcast will help a lot. It helps other people find it. So thank you for that in advance. And if you'd like to help out with a financial contribution, we've got a Patreon page with a few different membership tiers. So that would be great too. But either way, just a big thanks for everything you've done to uh, support over this time. Today, I am talking with Philip. Philip lives in Florida and he is a suicide attempt survivor. How you doing, Philip? Oh, I'm good. I'm sorry. I've never done Zoom before. No worries. I appreciate it. Where are you, by the way, like right now? Where are you? Well, I'm at Hooters. It's right down the road from the motel I'm still living in. Can you talk comfortably and safely where you are right now? Oh, yeah. I know you've got a lot you want to share, and I appreciate you. Oh, sure. Dude. Well, I, I went through uh, and I, I wrote down as best as uh, what I could remember the entirety of my life, which uh, I think I, uh, I told you before, it, it took quite a bit of prognosis and diagnosis to really kind of pinpoint exactly what was going on with me. Mm-hmm. But from what I understand, it's for sure type one bipolar disorder, non-psychotic features, mm-hmm. fortunately, also generalized anxiety disorder as well, as opposed mm-hmm. to a dual diagnosis of alcohol dependence. I interviewed somebody a few months ago that you're friends with and yes. you heard her or the podcast and you reached out to me. This- yeah. She's the one that introduced me to the podcast. I-, I thought her, her episode was fantastic. So my question for you is why did you reach out? To share because uh, not only if I live my life also feeling this way, but now I'm fortunate enough to have therapists and medical professionals actually treat me. I'm finding, even with like group therapy, I'm finding that my experience is kind of like a one-off, if you will. Like it's very lonely. I haven't really found anyone that 
has experienced what I have unless, you know, maybe if I uh, talk to people in like, say, a third world country, <laughs> like it's, if anything, I, I'm looking to be less lonely. And if anyone relates to me, my God, if I could just show them that they're not alone. Yeah. You know, and, and they have that my utmost sympathy. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, lived experience, man. Right. Yeah. We're going to just dive right in. Right. So how many suicide attempts do you have? It really depends on what we qualify or define as attempts. You define it. You you decide what it is. My first actual attempt where I was genuinely trying to die Mm -hmm. was when I was 13. And that was after my, oh, geez, uh, we won't even, like, we need to get into how early my symptoms, my, my first Baker Act was at 12. When you were 13, you already had some problems, right? You were some challenges. To say the least. What did you do? Specifically, uh, well, what was the attempt? Uh, I'm a little embarrassed to say, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Okay. <laughs> I just swallowed a, a, a bottle of Tylenol. Okay. It was impulsive. I was ready to go. And I, I had been ready to go for quite some time. And I was I was 13. But my first ideation, suicidal ideation, started at 12. Okay. Around sixth grade, seventh grade, which led to my first Baker Act. Yeah, my first attempt was at 13. And then a second kind of pseudo attempt. So mm-hmm. essentially what I did was I swallowed enough dexamethazine mm-hmm. dexamethasone mm-hmm. uh cough medicine essentially and i swallowed enough to cause significant as- concern because i was uh at risk of going into respiratory failure so i went to the hospital uh, before the baker act again but they gave me you know what they call charcoal if <laughs> that's a thing <laughs> because uh, especially when you when you've developed a an emetophobia a fear of vomiting uh, that doesn't sit well. <laughs> so, so you where were you living at the time? You in Florida? Yes, uh, I'm uh, like fourth or fifth generation native of Tampa. Gotcha. So very deep roots. Gotcha. So this is a really tricky question. So at 12 years old, you're ideating Baker acted. 13 year olds, you had 13. You had two attempts. If someone were to ask you why, like Philip, why did you try to kill yourself when you were 13? Would you be able to answer them? Yeah, yeah, no, I, to the best of my ability, I first started experiencing symptoms, undeniable symptoms, from my recollection, type one bipolar disorder and uh, codependency and romantic relationship. The first girl I became obsessed with, I was in first grade, her name was Megan. Uh, she was all I could think about. And I couldn't even concentrate because it was also my symptoms. I, I couldn't focus. Everybody said, He's intelligent, everybody. All my teachers would come to me and do evaluations. I would have to speak to guidance counselors. They were just, you're intelligent. You're just not applying yourself. God, geez, I I was was applying myself to the best of everything I had. Looking back on, you know, there was a, a very early divorce between my parents with a very contentious custody battle where my sister and I would basically use as leverage against each other out of, vindictiveness and spite and early childhood trauma it doesn't leave you it just resonates to the entirety of your life yeah and then uh you know uh, when you have a genetic predisposition to uh severe mental illness you, you, you throw in some early childhood trauma you can't expect anything other than right. some uh early symptomatic behavior sure. yeah 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. So it, it, it's not just one thing. It's yeah. it, it just all led up to, if anything, I, I'm lucky I suicidal ideation didn't happen until 12. Right. Because I was still eh, around puberty. But then 13, 14 happened, right? And that's when shit hit the fan. <laughs> so in your teenage years, were you a, a bad dude? Oh, my God. You can stop me. I was quite the juvenile delinquent. What were you doing? What type of stuff did you do? misdemeanors you know just general vandalism rebellion but I, i'm also extremely and have been extremely passive so like and not aggressive because i you know i i would get into fights but they would be involuntary it was because i didn't want to fight like if anything i'd I be scared to fight I, I didn't want to hit or i didn't want to be hit and i was just relentlessly bullied through the entirety of my school career and I would take it. Honestly, all I wanted to do is just try to be friends with everyone. Mm. I, I didn't want to fight. I didn't want to hit. I didn't want to, but I would just essentially just take whatever was given to me in the hopes that eventually it would pay off, but it never really did. Mm. And, uh, and that affected essentially my self-esteem, my, my ability to even function in school because I was in a constant state of fight or flight while I was in school and and then on top of the bipolar disorder, uh, inability to concentrate on anything that I didn't genuinely love. So, okay. Higher mathematics. I, I couldn't really process because it was all theory. It was all on paper. We're doing division on paper over and over, but it's not applied. There's no, there's no reason why this math makes any sense, but then things like, uh, natural and physical sciences, you couldn't stop me. Uh, and history, man, <laughs> don't even get me started on that. And those were all natural. You know, the system, uh, the, the educational public school system, it, it's not really meant for people like me. Probably true, right. It's not. Uh, I know your, your life isn't just a series of suicide attempts, but this is the podcast is suicide. Yes. So, I'm, uh, so I'll probably keep coming back to that. After the 13-year-old stuff, When's the next one? And you get to define what an attempt is. I don't. We'll skip along because uh, uh, there was a many series of traumatic events, significant abuse, neglect that I'm, I'm just now realizing. Well, I knew it was there. I just didn't realize the severity of it mm-hmm. and how much of an impact it had on my life. We'll just, for the sake of time, we'll, we'll skip over that. Sure. Uh, I get to, uh, well, in 2019, I, I was homeless. I had just come out of a severe mania. <laughs> Maybe if there's uh, some other time, we'll discuss what that was like. But uh, that mm. was my first full-blown mania where mm. I'd, I basically lost touch with reality. Okay. i given up my career as a welder to start a business as like a, basically an amateur ecologist. How long was that mania period for? Oh, well, that lasted for a few months. And it landed wow. me in another Baker Act. But uh, it was voluntary. And then uh, I had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder around the time of my first attempt. Uh, but there's been a series of events where I, I eventually, given the way that health insurance works, and I, I basically had to see a general practitioner to get any sort of psychi- psychiatric treatment. They would basically treat me as a uh, major depressive disorder and uh, generalized anxiety disorder. And the way they would do that is through SSRIs, which anyone that knows bipolar disorder knows that's gasoline on a fire to mania. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So uh, 2018 leading into 2019 was a severe mania. 
-hmm. And then the coming down from it led me to the homelessness. And then also I was experiencing severe anxiety. It was constant, prevalent, like perpetual. Like I, I, I was swallowing like buspar and propanolol. Like it was tic tacs. Like, and mm. it was still wasn't help. I was still fighting panic attacks. I would try to sleep just to escape the anxiety. But even the, the dreams I would have would be like stress dreams. Mm. And I would wake up and feel an anxiety attack coming on it, it it was awful and this lasted for weeks or months and then uh given the state i'm in uh, florida and uh, the way things work here i know it's different throughout the country but my ability to be treated relies on you know the health insurance i'm provided but the health insurance i'm provided is provided by an employer but to be employed long enough to even qualify for the insurance, which is usually the cheapest that option that they're willing to afford, uh, I need to be treated. It's hard to do that when you're in a major depressive episode or, or extremely anxious. Mm. At least in my opinion, I, I, I feel like I've discovered long ago, like it, our medical treatment isn't really made for people like me. <laughs> you know, I, there are people that fall through the cracks. Many, many um, do. Sure. Many yeah. Do. I feel like I could have been much more than just. A, oh, a man, I mean, I'm sure. I always think about the people I'll never get to talk to. The I hope that answers your question is why I'm trying to speak out. Hopefully, you know, I, I'm not seeking any public exposure. If anything, I'm, I'm resisting avoidant behavior and isolation by doing this. Sure. I'm just hoping maybe one person that this could resonate to you that, that just to show them because they're not alone and that they're loved and understood because God, if I could feel that way, <laughs> that would be great. So in 2019, when you were going through all the stuff and the anxiety and you were homeless, when you're homeless, like, are you in a shelter? Are you on the streets? Uh, basically on the streets, if you will. Yeah, I was a uh, homeless. I eventually found a house. It, it was a uh, run by an NA sponsor, and mm-hmm. it was a three bedroom house, and it was me living there with twelve other guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, it was packed, and it was uncomfortable, and it was scary. And we were—I uh, was unemployed. I couldn't hold down a job. I was uninsured, and yeah. we were living off of what church donations would give us, which was usually Publix cookies and sliced bread. Uh, so that's why I lived out for a while. Then got back into uh, a relationship with my daughter's mother, spanned up until the night of December 30th of 2020. It was a 11-year relationship. As of the time of this recording, we have a four-year-old daughter who's... Uh, She's everything I need. She's beautiful. (laughs) Lovely. And the reason I'm still here, to be honest. Did you say 2019 was your second or third attempt? There were no attempts. Those were those were voluntary Baker acts, which it wasn't one of those cute juvenile Baker acts where they they keep you for 24 hours. I, I was there for five to six days with people much sicker than me and sleeping in the same room with them, fearing for my own safety and Right. And the only reason I got out is because I had to sign paperwork saying, oh, we need to get the courts involved. But then they also said, well, if you sign this paperwork and the court says, no, you're going to 
we're going to have to redo your Baker Act. So you're going to be here for 10 to 12 days. It's a mess. So when you were going through all this stuff, I mean, because it spanned a lot of years, were you an ideator? Were you thinking about it and planning or were you not like, what was that like for you? Oh, okay. So 2019 is when I really perfected my method. Yeah. I, well, I had a lot of time to myself being homeless and uh, the severe depression and anxiety I was going through it also triggered by the, well, the drop from the mania and being uh, unmedicated as well as the environmental stressors. I really researched how I was going to do it because I, I had my own method. I'm a wuss. You know, mm-hmm. I wanted to be quick and painless and, sure. you know, I'm square, scared of it. Also, what's been successful from the many friends of mine that have done it, self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head seems to be most effective. Well, how close did you get to actually doing that? Well, in 2019, I didn't have the means to. I had the method, but not the means. Uh, 2020 happened and the world started collapsing when uh, COVID happened. And then we got a stimulus check, uh, just like any gun-ho American, I spent my government money on a firearm. <laughs> but it wasn't with the intent of turning it on myself. It was it was for a genuine fear of my own safety, and I felt stable as well. I'm not um, judging you for buying a damn gun. You do whatever you, it's your money. You do whatever you yeah, want. Yeah, no, that, yes. No, I, well, we can go into that, you know. But wait, that, so, that, did, so now that you had a gun and mm-hmm. you had means mm-hmm. and method... And this is, you know, not that long ago we're talking about. The night of December 30th of 2020. What happened that night? I don't want to go into too much detail because I'm still trying to work out a relationship with the person who triggered it. My worst fear happened. I had seen it coming. I I was watching it happening. And uh, essentially, I couldn't deny anymore. And it it came to my reality that uh, someone I cared about very much had found someone else and and wanted to carry on a relationship with them as opposed to me. Mm. What else? Uh, being in a codependent relationship, and that's how I live my life. What else do I have to live for if she's ready to go? Yeah. And uh, the thing is, not only do I experience extreme emotion, but it even has a severe physical discomfort where right here about my solar plexus, what I never studied Gray's anatomy, but I think that's where the stomach is. The gut, yeah, where, right where the, the rib cage kind of separates right below the lungs, that's where I always have a physical sense of anxiety, fear, pain. It ranges in intensity, but when I got that news, it was such a severe, intense pain. It, it was very sharp, where after I got the news, it was like I, I felt I had been stabbed. It was like trying to fall asleep with a shard of glass in my stomach. Yeah, I had enough. I was like, that's it. I already knew how I was going to do it. I had the means to. And uh, all I needed to do was I I just went to go lay down in bed and I just needed to think of where to do it because I needed to be in an isolated area, preferably somewhere where someone would not hear the gunshot. Yeah. But even if they did, by the time emergency services arrived, it would be far too late. So I I went to lay in bed, but I was laying there trying to figure out where I was going to go. And uh, my daughter, we've always had trouble trying to get her to sleep in her own bed. So she slept in bed with us and, and she was a, she was in bed with me. It was just me and her. And I was just laying next to her and I put my hand on her. And as much as I was trying to figure out where to go to do this, I just I just couldn't bring myself to leave her without a father mm-hmm. because of how much I love. She was my positive coping mechanism. And she was. I, that was it. I just so that I survived that night, I decided not to just tear myself apart. I just left. 
moved into a motel room and disconnected from the individual who caused me this pain. If we're going to talk about merely attempts, the next one, which was even closer, still in my motel room, it was the night of New Year's Eve. That's only a day later. No, it was November 30th was that night. Oh, November uh, 30th. Okay. Yes. But the New Year's Eve, I'd been living through that trauma. I had just been been given an early discharge from the PHP program I was in because I was, quote, a threat to everyone else's sobriety. (laughs) So before I got into my next PHP program, I just had to wing it myself. That night of New Year's Eve, I'd been triggered by the reality that I wasn't going to be able to see my daughter nearly as much as I would have liked because I'd only seen her about twice since then. Mm. Not by my own decisions, but only because of what the reality really presented to me. And I got some bad news and I got hammered. I went to my motel. I loaded my firearm. I put one in the chamber. I dropped the hammer because I'm a wuss and I work industrial construction and I'm a big advocate of safety. (laughs) But but it was also a, uh, the firearm I have is a double action, single action. So essentially, if I wanted to pull the trigger, it was done. But I just, I held it there, right? Because I needed to practice, essentially. And it, it's not that I ever wanted to die. I've never wanted to die. But I essentially just wanted to feel some sense of control over what was going on and what's always happened. And what's, I felt like I've never been in control. Nothing's ever gone the way that, I would have decided or would have chosen because if that was the case, things would have been very different for me. Mm-hmm. So that was my, I wouldn't call it an attempt because I, like I said, I never wanted to die. It's, I just don't like feeling cornered no matter what happens, no matter how, how hopeless the situation seems, no matter what I got, I got a way out because of how long I've been riding this bull. And how many chances I've given the state to try to correct it. <laughs> you know, I, I think I can get off this ride anytime I want at this point. Right. <laughs> and say if I had stage four cancer, yeah, this would be a very different conversation. Yeah. What stopped you from pulling the trigger? Do you know? My daughter. It was your daughter. Okay. Oh, and my mother. Jesus. My mother. Like, she's, she's the one that's kept me alive this long. She refuses to give up on me. All right. So you got a couple people in your corner. Well, I have two, but then again, from what I understand, when it comes to people who have lived a life of severe neglect, abuse, and trauma, there's not much of a social network because all my other friends died from suicide. So how many friends have you died? Have you lost from suicide? Three. You've lost three friends from suicide. And how many friends have you lost from other things? Difficult things, overdose, homicide, maybe five. Okay. That's a lot of loss, man. Not including family. And what are you in your, what are you about 30? 31. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Around 19 is when they started. Well, I lost a few family members before then starting at an early age. The first suicide was when I was 18, but she was a girl I was romantically involved with briefly, but mostly it was a platonic friendship. She overdosed on Xanax intentionally. And then uh, at the age of 19, Going forward, slowly, my friends started getting picked off. But uh, out of the five that died off, you know, one was to, I I watched him slowly die over the years. Honestly, he got worse and worse and worse. And he he was found in his car with a a fentanyl 
overdosed. And honestly, I, I think it was just like me when I did the dexamethasone. He wasn't necessarily trying to die. I think he was just he fuck was it. ready to go and trying to deal with reality. Yeah. And it was yeah. It's like fuck you it. know, it's that like kind it. of mixed fuck state it. between yeah. If I die, I die, right? Yeah. Mm, man. So just so people know, because you know, they don't see you, they'll only hear you. Phillips in his car. If I had to guess, I'd say it was a 2014 uh, Toyota of some kind. Am I right? My God, if I was that fortunate. <laughs> no, uh, it's, a, it's like an 05 Honda that. He's got some cool tattoos and he's got a, a baby seat in the back car, back seat. When eventually I'm able to see my daughter again, I got somewhere for her to go. So after the New Year's Eve thing, it's been what, three weeks? Oh, excuse me, about six, seven weeks, if my math is correct. So what you've been doing since then? been in PHP, uh, Rogers Behavioral Health. They've uh, taught me a lot of skills. For sure, I highly recommend uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and dialectal, dialectal oh. behavioral therapy. It's, it's done wonderful wonders for me because not only uh, is there so much empirical data and it's evidence-based treatment, but I found it kind of astonishingly parallel to the science of Zen Buddhism. Oh, which yeah? has helped me in itself through the traumatic death of a friend in twenty nine or 2009. Mm. It's essentially just all mindfulness practices, just living in the present, not mm. acknowledging your emotion, labeling it, but not getting caught up in it, letting it pass. Uh, essentially realizing that the amygdala and the cortex are two very different things, how they function, how they relate and just being aware of it. It's all awareness. It, it doesn't, it doesn't really take much skill. It just takes practice. Context is all. Mm -hmm. Everybody can do it. Probably so. Yeah. Yeah. What is one myth around? I will say suicide or suicide ideation or suicide attempt, but you can extend that further if you want to addiction, depression, whatever you want. A, a myth that you want to call bullshit on just kind of a common one that uh suicide is uh is a result of cowardice mm. at least in my experience the uh absolute opposite of reality mm -hmm. it it actually takes a lot of courage to follow through with it you know if anything uh the fact that i haven't followed through with it is merely the fact that i'm a coward could it be worse than what i currently experience could i don't know it's that uncertainty what is the likelihood, do you think, that you will attempt at some point in the future? Since being actually treated in the way that I wish I had been since six, seven, eight years old, I finally get the treatment now that I've been needing significantly less than what it's been. Yeah. I don't expect to ever try again or even get as close to. It's almost like asking someone, oh, what's, what's the... Uh, chances of you going back into mania now that you're on lithium yeah still got that gun not in my possession no i relinquished it to a friend and uh if i'm deemed mentally competent maybe i'll get it back but it's it's a luxury it's not a priority yeah yeah you had a long monologue of sorts in front of you in that notebook right oh i did yeah what but, stuff uh, what stuff uh, if you want to have a glance, did we not get to uh, that you want to share sort of open-ended? I know that's a very big and broad question because it's like, whoa, but. I feel like we, we basically covered everything. 
I feel like I touched on on just about everything. Just before you go, you live in a motel right now, right? Currently, yeah. I'm looking for, I've been looking for housing, but because of the credit and lack of rental history, and then now recent termination from my job because of the length of my um, medical treatment, it's an uphill battle. And I applied for Section 8 housing, but apparently from what I've heard, it's going to be about at least... 30 to 90 days before they even review my application. But from what I've heard from other people in other states, that's lucky. Mm. So uh, yeah, homelessness is still a very real thing for me. What I've been doing lately is trying to find people who are renting uh, from individual property owners. I know you got to, I know you said that you, you have to go fairly soon, but I, so that was my question. Yeah. So you're trying to figure out your housing thing. Yeah, because I'm still out of the motel. I've been here for about two and a half months. It costs well over 4000 The uh, disability claim that I elected for through my insurance that I've learned to elect that benefit because I'm used to having my life collapse and fall apart and being bay corrected on an annual basis. They decided to so graciously inform me well after my claim that they have a pre-existing condition clause. So lovely <laughs> denied my claim. And then of course, uh, loss of employment because of the uh, length of treatment, poor credit and lack of rental history. It may seem hopeless, but as long as I'm tenacious, optimistic, I keep plugging away. It change takes time. It doesn't happen. Sometimes it takes weeks, months, years yeah Yeah. i just i refuse to get caught up in my emotions anymore i just accept reality as as it is and at the moment i just try to live in the present and right now presently i'm as awful as everything may feel and seem i'm having a great time talking to you and being able to express what's happened and uh being able to finally tell someone what's happened you know i i appreciate you doing it man very much for sure people will hear it and i can't I don't, I can't guarantee how they're going to feel, but undoubtedly, you don't even have to broadcast this. It's just the fact that somebody actually listens. No, well, unless you specifically tell me not to, I, I will. Yeah. That's no, part please. of what I do. If that's it, part I, of what the podcast I hope that, is. If that helps someone else, you know, cause that's, you know, that's, I write that into my valued activities, my behavioral activations. And, and I would never presume to think, well, this person or this interview is less likely to help, so I'm not going to publish it. Like, I would, nah, no way. Everything goes, everything gets put out there. For sure. Like, this has been a very fluid conversation. In a car, no less. Mm-hmm. So. Got to work with what you got. I had a conversation with a young lady in, I think it was Indiana last month. Yep, same deal. She was in a car, but she's like, mm-hmm. I'm going to talk to you, man. Whatever I got to do. I was like, love it. Thank you. Yeah. So. Yeah. In the meantime, just keep doing what you're doing, man. Stay safe. And I, I do really appreciate you, you joining me and talking so openly. Dude, thank you for just listening. I, I it means more to me than I know how to express. I'll do the best I can. I, hey, you know, <laughs> uh, well, anyway. <laughs> All right, you take All right man. Good, good talking to you, Phil. Man, we'll talk soon. All right. All right. Be well, man. Thank you. Bye. As always, thanks so much for listening. And special thanks to Philip down in Florida. 
If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to share your story, please reach out. Hello at SuicideNoted.com or message us on Facebook or Twitter at Suicide Noted. That's all for episode number 48. Stay strong. Do the very best you can. I'll talk to you soon.